Good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you had a nice holiday. The Lord Jesus was traveling once from Galilee to Jerusalem. And on the way, he went through a village where there were 10 lepers. They cried out to him for mercy. And he told them to go and show themselves to the priest. And on their way, they were healed. But only one came back and praised and thanked him or gave glory to God for the miracle and the healing that he had done. And the Lord told us this for a reason. God desires us to be thankful, joyful, happy children who praise and live lives of gratitude. We see this all through the New Testament. Thanking and praising and showing gratitude to God is a central characteristic of the Christian life, of the kinds of people that God wants us to be. For example, writing to the church in Thessalonica, one of the apostles writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How do I live like that? How do I live a life of joy and gratitude? Well, apart from Christ, we can't. Because our guilt that we experience The guilt that our heart condemns us with, that our culture condemns us with, that our enemy condemns us with, it buries us. And in pride, as we try to justify ourselves to get people to back off, we harden ourselves. And as we live ungrateful lives, scratching and clawing like alley cats, this brings judgment. But if you were here with us over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at guilt, grace, and today gratitude. And this is the Christian life, moving from guilt to gratitude. In week one, we looked at our guilt. Not the guilt that I say that I bear or that my family or culture says that I bear. Not the guilt or condemnation that our enemy heaps upon us. But the true guilt that God declares we have. What God calls sin is sin. And we looked at our guilt before God and his gracious pardon. His forgiveness and washing for those who put their faith in Christ. And last week we learned how to grow in grace after we're saved, after baptized, through faith and effort and endurance. We can transform and break free and have victory over the sin in our members. We can transform and become fruitful, happy, peaceful, grateful people. Why are we doing this series? Why spend three weeks looking at grace and guilt and gratitude? Well, a recent uh, theologian who passed away a couple years ago, R.C. Sproul, he says it best. He says, grace should never cease to amaze us. God has an absolute, pure, holy standard of justice. That's why we cling with all our might to the merit of Jesus Christ. He alone has the merit to satisfy the demands of God's justice. And he gives it freely to us. We haven't merited it. There's nothing in us that elicits the Lord's favor that leads to our justification. It's just pure grace. And the more we understand what God has done for us as sinners, the more willing we are to do whatever he requires. The great teachers of the church say that the first point of genuine sanctification is an increasing awareness of our own sinfulness. With that comes at the same time an increasing awareness of God's grace. And with that, again, increasing love 
and increasing willingness to obey him. So there it is. We are grateful people. We are thankful for the grace of God in our lives. And so that begs some questions. Like having been forgiven by God, how should we live? How do I live in a way that pleases him? And the biblical answer is to do good works. There are many commands in the Bible for every area of life. But the big summary, the big phrase to describe what our life looks like after we've been saved, after we've been adopted, after we've received the amazing grace of God, is that we've been saved to do good works. And so in Ephesians, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We were not saved by our good works, but we were saved for good works. And when you receive the Lord Jesus and you're adopted into his family, this is now your mission and purpose in life, to do good. It's no longer to worship selfie and do what you want, when you want, where you want, how you want, like our culture preaches. It's not to make yourself great and to follow your dreams, but through normal acts of goodness to honor God as a grateful son and daughter. Now, some people take the grace of God and see it as a blank check to live a life of sin. Well, God will forgive me. They see confession of faith in Christ almost like fire insurance. When I die, it's going to get me into heaven, but between now and then I can live how I want. And they may say, and many have said, if our guilt is removed by grace alone, then why must we do good works? And the answer is, is because God has redeemed and renewed us by his Holy Spirit for purposes. God has done this salvation for a purpose. He saved us and created us with a purpose in mind. And to receive Christ in faith also means that he's our Lord and that we want to fulfill the purpose for which he saved us. One of those is to bear Christ's image on earth. Not to bear the old image of Adam, the man of sin, but to bear the new image of the new Adam, Christ, the man of righteousness. So, To the Corinthian church, Paul writes, Just as we have borne the image of the old man of dust, Adam was from the dust, and he came back to the dust when he died. We shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. Christ came from heaven, and he returned to heaven. And he gave us his Holy Spirit so that we could be transformed from the inside out to look and feel and think and desire and act and live more and more like him. Another purpose for which God saved us, another good work that God intends us to do, is to live holy, thankful lives. This is important to God. Thankfulness is right at the heart of fruitful, spirit-filled Christian living, from the beginning of the Bible to the end. So the psalmist writes, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? I will lift up the cup of salvation And call on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And call on the name of the Lord. Notice the psalmist is essentially asking, how do I pay you back? I'm so grateful. What can I give you? 
And the answer is thanksgiving and faith. Don't put your faith in any other God. Don't call upon the name of any man, but put your faith in the Lord. Call upon him. Give thanks to him. This is one of the purposes for which we were saved and created. This is one of the good works that God created us to do. And so in the New Testament, again, it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God wants us to live a life of always joy, joyful, always thinking, singing. There's a song in our heart. There's joy in our heart because we see how great his love and grace and power and protection is. We're free from fear and anxiety. We're free to live peaceful, innocent lives because our father is big and strong and he's with us and he loves us and he's walking with us and we're safe. And so there's this pray, there's this joy. He says that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That means there's just a conversation that we always are able to move back in and out with God. Some of you have group texts with your family and there's just little conversations going on throughout the day. And in the same way, God wants us to be talking to him as we walk and as we live. Yes, he wants us to pray faithfully, regularly during the day. But he also wants us to pray without ceasing. And he says, in everything give thanks. We give thanks when we suffer. We give thanks to God when bad things happen to us. Because God is the God who gives and takes away, as Job testified to. God is pleased when we go through suffering. When we face hardships, and yet we still thank him because we know that he's working all things together for good. We were given grace so that this world, when he looks down, wouldn't just be full of awful wailing and depression and anger and bitterness and ingratitude, but that there would be people, billions and billions of people, who are hopeful, grateful, and joyful as they praise and thank God. So ask yourself. Am I praising God and thanking him? And how can I do it more and more? Another reason why he saved us is so that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. Our good works are one of the ways that God confirms to those who don't believe in Christ that he really is the Lord and Savior of the world. When they see the transformation of Christ, when they see Christians encouraged stepping forward, when all else step back, when they see Christians sacrificing and pouring out and giving, when everybody else is saving and hoarding and looking out for themselves, when they see self-control and compassion and tenderness, when everyone else is losing their minds, when they see sober-minded, judicious, fair-handed justice, when mobs want their justice, this is a way that the Holy Spirit convicts them of righteousness, that, that, that Jesus really is the way to righteousness. And so Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And through the Apostle Peter, the Lord writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who do not follow Christ. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, think of a trial and someone standing up to testify against you. They may see your good deeds when they investigate the matter. They'll see, actually, this person is doing all sorts of good things. 
They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Lord is pointing to some people in these two verses. Who is the Lord focusing us on, on these commands? He's focusing us on the Gentiles, on the unbelievers, on the non-Christians. Your neighbors and co-workers and your classmates and in-laws. These are people who do not yet believe it's true. They don't really yet believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. And he really is the Godman who's come to, to give us eternal life. But seeing your conduct, seeing the blessing of God on your home with your kids, seeing God's blessing in your business and relationships, they say, I sure wish it was true. If God, if God is out there, I want him to be like the Lord Jesus. I see something here that, that I want, that I'm attracted to, that's glorious, that, that leads them to praise. Something else that we personally benefit from through our good works. Another thing that God does as we do good works is that he assures us of our faith and salvation by its fruit. Assurance of salvation is important. There are many people today deconstructing their faith, saying that they're not sure they were ever Christians. Many Christians live with this constant demon on their shoulder telling them they're not good enough, they're not really Christians, their hearts condemn them, their culture condemns them, the enemy condemns them. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to have peace and assurance of our salvation. However, if there is no fruit in our lives, if there's no good work to speak of, then we lose one of the major sources of our subjective assurance. God's assurance is based on two things. The most important thing is his word, the objective word that he has given that doesn't change. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, God sees the heart, but out of the heart grows fruit, either bad or good. We can confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, but not truly say in our hearts, Jesus is Lord. And so there are some stiff warnings tied to fruitfulness. And this is where good works and fruitfulness in our lives are a real assurance to us when we're being condemned by our hearts and our culture and our enemy. Jesus says, so every healthy tree, and we're the tree in this um, parable or analogy. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, every person who does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. How do I recognize false believers? How do I recognize people in our midst who are not truly brothers or sisters like the Pharisees? By their fruits. Again in Galatians, he writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Christ, you're putting your old sin to death, and these fruitful things are growing in you. This cluster of fruit, kindness is growing, and peace, and patience, and joy, and love, and faithfulness, and self-control. These things are growing in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we see it grow in us, 
as our brothers and sisters confirm it and testify to us and commend us, and we see that God is working in our lives, we see ourselves sloughing off and putting to death the old sin, this is a great subjective assurance. This is a comfort to us. This helps us to feel like, no, God really is, he's working. Now we have to hold on to his objective word, regardless of how we feel. But the fruit matters. And you know whether you're of the Lord or not, in part by your unfruitfulness. John 15 says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Unfruitfulness is something that we need to deal with in faith when we see it. Because the unrepentant, those who see the sin but don't repent, those who hear these warnings but don't take them seriously, soberly, and repent, the unrepentant do not inherit the kingdom of God. This is stated over and over in the New Testament. There's a series of passages that all say the same thing. I've included them in the handout that goes along with this message. A handout that I hope you've downloaded and printed and that you're following along with. Because we're covering a lot of verses, but I, I put these together for you so that you can go back through them this week, slowly and faithfully, diligently, putting in the effort, like I talked about last week, putting in the effort to read the Word of God so that God can work in you and He can open your eyes and He can convict you and He can give you nutrients and help you to understand what you should do in faith. And so in this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Some of you were like this. Some of you were living this way. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And like the Corinthian church, many of us were like this. These sins, these clusters of sinful fruit were filling our lives. But we came to the cross. We confessed our sin. We received Christ as Lord and Savior. We've committed ourselves to responding to his words in faith and obedience. And he is putting these things to death. And he is growing fruit in us. But if these things are growing more and more, and you are not repenting of them, but you have seared your conscience so that you don't have any sense that this is wrong, beware. There are warnings. So this then leads us to ask the question, well, then what do I do with my sin? And we're back to the first sermon, which is, I see guilt. And the answer is confess and repent. One of the best verses in the Bible to memorize, one of the great promises in the New Testament is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What did God just promise us? We don't have to sacrifice bulls and goats. We don't have to flog ourselves like the Buddhists do or some of the Catholics do. We don't have to clean ourselves up and get all, all good back into God's graces. The way our sin is washed away is we confess it. We agree with God. We say, God, I agree it was sin. I'm responsible. It was wrong. And I admit it. 
Please forgive me for this sin. And forgive me in Jesus' name. Please wash me of this sin. Help me to break free from this unrighteousness. And we repent. Acts 20.21 Paul says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, to everyone, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So we confess and we repent. You change your thinking. You change your direction. As we saw in the first week, we shouldn't carry our sins. We shouldn't try to hide or bury our sins or justify ourselves. We should just confess and repent and believe what God says. We are not guilty. We are forgiven. And that leads us to thank God for his grace. Because the more we see the greatness of our sin, our brokenness, our pride, our arrogance, all of our sins, the greater we see his amazing grace. So the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? The psalmist is free. He's so light. These things have been taken away, not guilty. He had a huge debt of billions of dollars that was simply forgiven by the king he owed it to. And he's gone, free to go. Freedom. He's so grateful. And then he says, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Steadfast love and mercy. This is the grace of God. So we confess and we repent. And you may ask, well, what is true repentance? What is it? It has two parts. True repentance, true spirituality, is the dying of the old nature. And... The coming to life of the new. It's the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. There are many passages in the scriptures that speak of this. But one of these that speaks of repentance is Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Stop tearing your clothing in a show and tear your heart. Truly hate your sin. Mourn for your sin. Weep because you see how broken and sickly you are and how in need of my grace you are. Face your sin directly so that you can be healed. What is God saying he wants? He wants you to rip your heart out. He wants you to weep and mourn over our sinful betrayals. He wants heartfelt sorrow that we've offended God. And the more and more that we would hate our sin and that we would flee from our sin. Are you saying that I should feel bad in a culture that worships feelings, where feeling bad is the greatest of all sins, where I should just do what I feel, where everybody worships their feels? Yes, that's exactly what God is saying. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The Lord is saying he wants us to grieve. He wants us to grieve in a godly way. He's grieved by our sin. And we ought to grieve as well. And the sorrow we feel and the disgust that we feel, it's a natural and good emotion. 
but rather than to let that emotion condemn us and depress us and ultimately lead us to death, which is what the world does because they have no savior. They have no atonement. They have no blood sacrifice. They have no way of washing away their sins. There's no, no one in the world who can pardon us. There's no one in the world who can justify and forgive us. We're all guilty hiding our sin and, and justifying our sin. And it leads to death. It's exhausting. But when we see our sin as God does, we turn to him for pardon and forgiveness. And we receive it. We truly receive it every day. His mercies are new every day. And it leads to salvation. And then we move forward, putting our sin to death in our flesh. Understanding that the life of a Christian is a life of mortification, putting sin to death. It's a life, a full-time occupation of killing and getting rid of and pushing out and stamping out and purifying out the sin in our lives, in our members. And God powers us to do it. He's promised to do it. There is no sin. There is no stronghold. There is no blind spot. There is no weakness or trauma that God cannot heal and cleanse by his grace in his time as we walk in faith. And so again to Romans, Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, if you keep feeding the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Before we were Christians... Something like a spirit of sin, a power, was living in us, chaining us down, keeping us from doing what was right, tying us to sin. But now that we are joined in Christ in faith, God has broken the power of sin. When Christ died, he killed the power of sin. That power, that force, that spirit of sin has been stripped of its power. But we still have habits. We still have a culture that's trying to squeeze us into sinful living. We still have an enemy who's trying to feed us with his ideas and his emotions and his desires. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have victory. We can have God's thoughts, emotions, God's power. And that's the second part of repentance. The coming to life of the new. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now the sin in my members, in my flesh, the old patterns and the old habits that I see more and more clearly as I try to walk in obedience to God's word and his holy standard is held up and it's a mirror and I see more and more and more blotches And as I walk with him and he helps me put to death more and more of the sin in my members, as our enemy tries to feed us ideas, emotions, and desires, we can have victory. Because now we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Christ himself lives in us. And he gives us his ideas and his emotions and his desires and his power so that we can grow fruitful, so that we can do good works, so that we can bear his image And this is a transforming process. And so in a song about repentance, David reveals this crucial component, a willing spirit. That's what 
God gives you. That's what this new life is. When we repent for the first time, the Holy Spirit is given to us, and he gives us the desire, the will to do what is good. And he sustains that will, and we need that. And so the psalmist says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The Lord gave David a willing spirit to turn from his sin, to repent, and to sustain his new righteous walk. And as we repent from our old dead sin and turn to a new life in Christ, we have from God this willing spirit. God is replacing our old love for sin with a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God out of gratitude for his grace. So if you still sin in some way, confess, repent, and ask God for the willpower to sustain you in your new walk, and your new life. Ask for prayer from your brothers and sisters so that you may be healed, as it says in James. You don't have to hide your sin or be ashamed of it. You can bring it into the light because there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. We're a family of forgiven sinners. We're all walking by the grace of God. None of us have any right to condemn anyone else because we're all we are all sinful down to the core. And so in this community of the redeemed who are grateful for the grace of God, we can be honest about where we are so that we can pray. And as you confess your sins, it takes away its power over you because its power over you is the shame it makes you feel and the fear of punishment that it tells you you're going to get. But when you confess it, you're saying, I don't fear punishment and I will not be ashamed. And the grace of God flows in and it cleanses out those things. The confession is healing. It's purifying. And now that we live this new life, now that we have gone from guilt by God's grace to gratitude, we walk in the most excellent way. Having been absolved of all our guilt by the free grace of God, we live lives gratitude and praise of obedient faith motivated by love. We live lives of gratitude and praise. That story I told you at the beginning of the ten lepers, here's how it ended. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, the least likely to do it. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This humble, joyful, grateful man is being held up by the Lord as a model for all of us to follow when we receive the same healing that he received. He had a physical leprosy. We have a spiritual, moral leprosy. And Christ has washed it away. And he has given us his spirit. And so, each time he cleanses us, each time we find more guilt and sin and confess and receive forgiveness, we should again be full of thanks and praise. You are no longer dirty. 
None of you who have put your faith in Christ are dirty anymore. You are not unwanted. You are not unworthy. You are beloved. You are accepted. You are delighted in by God. And we hold on to these promises. And when you believe it, when God gives you the faith to believe it, it lights you up. It lightens your step. It gives you joy, which pleases God. Happy, peaceful, grateful children. That's his purpose. And that leads us to say, what may I do to please you more, Lord? Obedient faith. Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. The more we know Christ, the more we love and admire and adore him. And as you put your faith in Christ and obey him, he will show you his power. He will reveal to you his wisdom. He will show you his faithful love. Despite your great sin, he will teach you how to live the joyful life, the life of peace. And yes, when you get to know Christ, he will show you how holy and pure he is. And when we see it like Peter did on those banks of the Sea of Galilee, we may be tempted to say, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Or like when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, he said, Woe to me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he fell down as though he was dead. But the Lord lifted Isaiah up and he washed away his sins. And the Lord lifted Peter up and made him his friend and companion and sent him out to be a fisher of men. And the same thing is how God treats us. As he reveals his goodness to us and his love to us and his justice to us and his power and wisdom, he also reveals his holiness. And that holiness can spook us because in the reflection of that holiness, our sins become all the more manifest. But we know what to do with them, don't we? From guilt through grace to gratitude. Over and over again. And now, having been transformed from guilt to gratitude, our motivation is not fear of punishment, but love of God. And this is what God has always wanted for us as his children, to love him the way that he loves us. Jesus said, to love your Lord, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest command. This is what God wants more than anything. Why? Because this is how God loves you. He loves you with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul, and all his strength. Think about that. That's who we are today. Having received Christ, received his love, that's who we are today. This is the joyful, peaceful, indestructible, unstoppable life of God. This love is what powers the kingdom of God, which is expanding across the globe today. This is what people need. People who are caught and dead in their sin can be saved and brought to life when they hear about the gracious love of God. So having surveyed the amazing grace of God, overflowing with gratitude, free from our guilt, 
Let's end the sermon by responding in faith this week. What next steps can you take? Well, one, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. If God has opened your eyes and mind to understand the sermon today so that you see the great love and mercy of God in Christ for those who follow him, who make him their God, who give him their life, who confess their sins and receive his forgiveness. If you're prepared to declare Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then all these promises can be for you. And if you're watching this and you have not decided to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, do it today. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. And if you die, you will stand before God who judges all mankind. And you can stand before him forgiven because of what Christ did, or you can stand before him with your own righteousness, holding your own merit in your hand. And if God judges you based on your righteousness, which of us can stand? No, receive his mercy and forgiveness. Receive his grace in your life. Let him transform you. It's the best life. It's the eternal life. So receive Christ today. And if you decide to do that, let us know on the digital connection card. I am ready to commit my life to Christ so that we as pastors can help you as people helped us come into the kingdom. Number two, read through the verse, the verses of the sermon this week. These are the words of life. These are precious promises. These are sober warnings. These are the best instructions. So devote yourself to the teaching and put in the effort this week. Read over these words each day, a little bit more of the sermon, using the notes provided, and ask God to make them real in your life. Number three, you may have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin in your life that's still operating, that you haven't confessed and repented of. So finish this sentence. My next steps today are to confess and repent of the willful sin of what is the sin that you're still engaged in. Confess it and repent. And then finally, express gratitude to God or to someone else by fill in the blanks there. As a family, take time each night at dinner to thank God. Thank your parents. Thank your spouse. Thank your siblings. Thank your leaders and teachers. And count your blessings and thank God for all the good that he's done for you each morning and each night. These are the kinds of people God wants us to be. People who are freed from his, freed from guilt full of grace and gratitude as we hold out the eternal life to this dark and dying world. This is the work God is doing. And I hope that you've been encouraged by this series and that you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the pardon and forgiveness you offer and your mercy in Christ. We're grateful for the grace you continue to fill us with as we walk with you in faith. And Lord, we are grateful that we are sons and daughters with an assured inheritance in your kingdom, with your protection and direction and provision and correction. We are not orphans any longer. We have been adopted and you're a good father. You care for us. And so please open our minds and apply these words to our hearts and help us to work out our faith and our salvation in the ways that you desire. In Jesus' name.